Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang dhammang sangkang namasami. <clears throat> I only realized I was going to give a talk about 10 minutes, quarter an hour before the meeting, so a bit of an impact to the psychophysical phenomena. <laughs> I once said to uh, Ajahn Majiro once, I just said, if ever you want, you know, you don't want to give a talk, you can just look along the row one night. And of course he took me up on it and then I was sitting in the front row and he did his, did his usual. And then after he suddenly just went. <laughs> it was quite, quite an impact. I must say, sitting meditating, I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't, if I said, oh, I just sat there with a quiet mind, and naturally things come up. You know, you're going to give a talk, but uh, the nature of my mind, I know that uh, I often say this if I repeat myself, and I'm apologise, but uh, I know that if I plan, plan, and then as soon as I sit up here, you know. It's, my mind goes into, tends to go into free association very quickly, so I have to really guard, guard my mind. Even to remember what came to mind is difficult. <laughs> I did reflect a bit earlier about um, Ajahnamaro after the, the Pawarana ceremony, he was mentioning about um, us asking forgiveness of each other and letting go of the past and what it is to be in a monastery, the purpose of a monastery. And then later in the afternoon we've got another young sister who's joined us when I was a layman, I think people, people who know me know this, I was well set up. You know, I had, I had money and uh, I was semi-retired in my 30s, a nice place in the country, no mortgages, my wife was part-time. I was a meditator, so she would go off to work in the morning. She worked in Cambridge in a Royal Society of Chemistry. And... Um, so she would just work in the morning, so she'd go to work, and then I'd, I'd sit up, I had my own little shrine room, overlook the countryside, it was very idyllic, so I'd sit up in my shrine room looking out the window and meditating until she came home at dinner time, 12 o'clock. 
So I had quite an idyllic life. And when I became a monk, when I finally landed up in Sri Lanka, people said, how, why did you, why did you become a monk? You were well set up. You could just sit and meditate all day and you'd go on retreats. And I managed a few retreats and it was very nice, very nice life. But there was that in me, and this is really for monastics, there was that in me, and I think with lots of people who come into a monastery, there was some desire in me, deep in me, whether it was some innate wisdom that uh, wanted to be outside of my comfort zone. And even, even before that, when I'd first seen monks and came in contact with Buddhism and then saw monks, there was something intuitively in me that uh, wanted to, you know, had, had the desire to move in that direction. Because, because there was something in me that knew, you know, there was work other than sitting there blissfully looking out my window and meditating and going on meditation retreats. There was some other work that needed to be done. I knew I was very, you know, very inside, had my own issues. Um, even though I was always a kind of quite a jolly, funny, and a good sense of humor, lots of friends and things like that. And I can be very funny and things like this. And I used to say to people, we don't realize, he said, a lot of comedians commit suicide. <laughs> because often, often the comedy is a cover, you know. It doesn't mean that I was a desperate being inside. I was quite a happy, happy, happy person in that sort of sense. So, there was, so then the opportunity came to become a monk. You know, my children had grown up and things like that. So I just put myself in a position where, where things were out of, you know, were out of my control. And um, this, is where, this is where we do learn. It, we often, uh, Ajahn Sumedho used to talk about early on, he used to be a bit more callous about, not callous about it, but he used to talk about the Holocaust and the crucifixion and I want down off this cross, you know, for being in a monastery. And there is work. There is work in a monastery. We, I, when we were having the, the this morning at the breakfast after breakfast, and Ajahn Amaro was talking, I was looking along everybody, and I suddenly thought, "How there's 50 people here, and we've all been living together, and hopefully we haven't been making each other too angry, you know. But we've all had our work, things we have to do, which we prefer not to do, and." things like this, but I thought it's really quite amazing, <laughs> you know, and I was reflecting, even now after 33 years, I thought, hell, when I think when I was in my, in my cottage in the country, and I thought, here, here we are, you know, and um, I saw a monk in Sri Lanka, a monk came to Sri Lanka, I'd known about 15 years before, he was more senior to me, but we started rapping and talking, and I was just my usual bimelo, and he said, oh, you don't seem to have changed much. You know, but something, and it wasn't, it wasn't a conceit in me or anything like that, but something in me wanted to say, well, my personality, you know, it's my personality, you know. I'm not going to be able to shut that off. I've tried to shut that off. It doesn't work, you know. But reflecting in myself, I knew that it was fundamental. I changed a great, a lot of change in myself. Not great, you know, not... A, uh, an illumined, radiant being floating through, floating through life or anything like that, but things which actually, 
you know, just my, my relationship to my environment, to my people outside, everything like that, I knew that fundamentally my, the inside of me had become very loose, a lot looser. And I, I think the last time I gave a talk was quite a while ago here. Um, I gave this, like the, I like this expression, this uh, simile. I love similes, you know, in all religions. I like similes, stories, you know, which illustrate things. But something I do like is this thing, which I think mentioned last time, of the fist, you know. And that I see with the little finger, you have body, You've, we've got all these lists, body, feeling, perception, conception, consciousness, you know, as the fingers. And then as we clench, we pull this fist together. This tension is at the sense of self. And then we cling to this. When we even say, even say if you haven't given many talks or something like that, or suddenly something springs a talk on you, you know, I, watching my mind, I can see that, or someone, someone, presses a button or something like that. I see this fist go, you know, and this is sense of self, grips, 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 like this. And, and coming into a monastery and our work, I mean, most of you know all this, I'm sure. You know, we only repeat what we all know anyway in our hearts. We know our work is to do like this, is to start relaxing, is learning how to relax so that we start to be able to see not literally, but in some ways it is literal. We start to be able to see the space between the fingers. Until the time comes, we're still the fingers which create the self, but it's loose. You know, so our personality or who we are or anything like that is still this, this, this which creates the self. But there's a looseness in it. So instead of, instead of being with this grip thing, we are with... We're with um, um, how do I put it? We're with the loose kind of bits and pieces. You know, I'm sometimes, sometimes I look at me myself, and I'm sure other people are the same. You've been meditating a while, they look in their self, and they suddenly, it's as if they can't put their finger on their self, or well, they are as bits and pieces. You know, you're a little more than a, a hologram. It's like a hologram moving around. I mean, you can still grip here and there. Enlightened beings, anything like that. We can still grip, but it's this this letting this letting go. But in the way, in some ways, it looks like um, it can be unbearable. <laughs> in some ways, it's illustrated like there's a lovely Sufi. Um, I remember Ramdas, the guru Ramdas, years ago, mentioning about grace, grace. You know, from the Christian term grace, and he says. Um, suffering is, it's Guru said, suffering is grace. You know, we think, oh, grace will be this wonderful thing from God or whoever, Allah, or whatever you like to say. Um, but in actual fact, it says, suffering is grace because suffering, um, pleasure keeps us asleep to the way we're normally thinking of the world or our relationship in the world and ourselves. Whereas suffering is the disconfirmation of that image forces confrontation and in that way it gives us a chance to transcend to go beyond to meet to meet meet that conflict or these tensions and release them and how do we re release them we can go to lots of books and analysis and read all that i mean in the end of the day we have the faith as buddhists hopefully 
we have the faith that awareness, mindfulness, um, to be aware, to stay with awareness, this, this is what does it. This is what wears this down, wears it down gradually. But when you hear, I heard the, the Sufi, the very lovely Sufi master, and I repeat this one quite a lot because I think it's a lovely one. He points at a candle and he says, see this candle, he says, this candle allows itself to be consumed completely in order to bring light into the world. And if you put your hand near the flame of the candle, you will feel the intensity of the heat that it must endure at times. You know. And I wrote a letter to my brother once, and uh, this is a Wimeloism, not a Sufi mark, this is a Wimelo. <laughs> but I wrote to my brother and in a letter, and I said, we are creatures of the earth, so like the earth, uh, as the same as with the earth, it often takes heat and pressure in order to produce an inner diamond. And this is what often, often is the case. We often find times in monasteries in life where if we're skillful and we use our awareness skillful, skillfully and we develop this ability just to reflect, not with thinking, not with reading books, but just with the pure, pure fact of observing, observing. And I think Lompur Dun, Lompur Dun uses this expression, discerning mind is the way. This is the way. And the, the, it is the observing which brings us to, to um, intuit mind. To see that mind isn't just something we momentarily have, but it's, it's something else that develops in us. And I say this story with the candle is that the more, we, the more we allow ourselves to be consumed, then the, more, then the more we come in touch with the light, you know. And this is what monasteries are about. about, uh, about. So even though these stories, there's, there's that, you know, that about the candle or suffering is grace, it gives quite a thing. But um, underneath that, there's, there's a purpose for this. And it's to develop, is to have faith in this just being aware. It doesn't always work. I mean, we often get blown away. But even when we get blown away, the moment we're aware, we, we're back again in our practice. And I think most people, when they come into monasteries, they have the aspiration to be a monk or nun then um, there's something in, in us that even though we know we're going to be ground down a bit, <laughs> there's something beyond that that knows, that knows something other, that knows this is, what, uh, this is what brings peace, this is the way to peace. There is different ways if someone is really skilled you know, in, in high-level concentration, in jhana, and can produce inner radiant light and... Then they can use. Then they can use that. You know, they can use that. They can turn it into seeing through the world in a in a different way, from from a point of uh, that kind of samadhi.
Nothing more to be said, really. <laughs> but it's the faith, the faith in being, being aware, staying with awareness. There's some funny stories. When I first, sometimes like I'd been meditating for a good few years, and then when I, just some amusing story, when I first uh, decided to come into a monastery, you know, I'd been meditating a few years, and then I, I did about 18 months, I thought I'd come here as an Anagarika, and uh, I'd do this, and then after being an Anagarika, I'd decide whether to ordain in here or Thailand. And then after 18 months here, I'd ground down enough to decide that I'd go to Thailand. <laughs> but uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was, I kind of thought, it, and it wasn't so that I was so attached to my family, but I felt that to go to Thailand was, um, would be better. Would, you know, just intuitively, I think that was to, to cut myself off completely. Because I know that Thailand was going to freak me out a bit. You know, the thought of centipedes and snakes. You know, the thought of a sound. I remember arriving at Wat Banana Chat and walking up one of the paths, and I saw monks walking in the undergrowth, and I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to walk, in, walk through the undergrowth like that. You know, you must be crazy. But then you just got, I just got to bored with being frightened of that and started walking through the undergrowth. And you attract things, you attract things you're frightened of anyway. When I lived in Kanchanaburi, I had a thing about centipedes. I was saying about centipedes, I had strong aversion to. I found it very difficult to just be aware of my fear of centipedes. And I seemed to be in a kuti which attracted centipedes. And even when I was in Kanchanaburi, I'd put tar all around the legs of the the kuti and things like that. And then I'd go to pick up my unksa and the back of a centipede, big centipedes, they have these little kind of wiggly like the tentacles and they wiggle, wiggle. And I'd just go to pick up something and so I'd see these things, like, oh, it's one of them 10 centipedes. Then we'd get rid We even marked a centipede to see if it came back, whether it was the same one had assumed that my kuti was its home. But I would never sleep outside of a net with these, with these uh, centipedes. Of course, the inevitable happened. We were sitting there one night, Pati Moka, and it was Ajahn Yanarato was with Pati Moka, and it was Ajahn Kwesako was there. And um, I might have told this story, but um, I'm there like this, and it was a kind of open sala, straw roof, and then the monk next to me went and tapped me like this. And I looked down, and here... I saw just the back bit of a centipede wiggling around and I thought, oh God, I can remember this. And I, I put my leg like this and then I said to Ajahn Kwesakai, I just went, and he just said, oh, stand up, stand up. And I thought, no, I'd known a nun who tried to get, and she got bitten on the stomach four times one of these things, so I thought, no, I'd stay there. And then the next thing, it was in my sabong. And it was going down my leg, and it was trying to get my skin, and I was making all my skin tight so it couldn't get a grip. And then, and then it started to go underneath, and I won't get too personal, but I thought, if it goes into that part of my body and uh, bites me, I'm hospitalised. I'm definitely hospitalised. You know, and I, I literally had sweat running down my face. And uh, it ran down my leg, and I had my foot like this, and it came to my foot, and I just thought, 
God, if there is a God or anything, if I'm going to get bitten, let me get bitten on the foot. And then as it got down to my foot, I pulled my robe up like this and it ran over my foot and it just ran away from me. And it ran to the monk opposite and the monk opposite suddenly, he was like this and he saw it and he went like this. And then it ran and it ran, it ran under Nyanarato's foot while he was doing Patimoka. And he was, and monks will appreciate this, I'm sure. And he's doing it because Ajahn Kawesako is Japanese, Nanarato is Japanese, so he's got the emperor behind him. <laughs> so he can't move, you know. And he'd just come to the end of the Patimoka, and then he just said, Patimoka Nitidang. And then we all went, Nyanasan. I used to call him Nyanasan because he's Japanese. And he just went, and he'd lifted up. And he had got him between his big toe and his next toe. And there was just all blood. And he lifted his foot up. And it just fell off. It had, had a meal. And he spent, I mean, he spent a night in agony with this, with this thing. But anyway, so I, got, I kind of got used to that. But um, so, it was, you know, when you're fearful of something, you draw it to you. I mean, I often give this illustration. I, I often mention it in talks because it's important to me. And I often say to lay people, I said, you know, desire brings things to you. So the desire to get rid of something, um, even if you get rid of it, you'll still get that back again because underneath your personality, there's the paticca samupada, and you've got this other thing functioning which has got nothing to do with you. To think that it's all to do with us, we've got control, it's a total illusion. You know, there's something else working underneath. And all tanha knows is, is desire. So and it doesn't know desire to get, desire to get rid of. It just sees desire. And then you desire something and it says, oh, I can create that. Or even if you desire to get rid of something, it goes, oh, I can create that. You know, so you always get that. That's why people always find themselves in lousy situations that they don't want because they, they, their aversion to it is so strong and keep drawing it to them. So you have to, and I'm always trying to encourage people. I say, if there's something you really don't like, don't think to yourself, I want to get rid of that. I don't want that. Think to yourself, I'd like to be more peaceful. I'd like to be more peaceful. And then the desire will go, I can make you more peaceful. It will create, you'll start reading books and looking for pieces for peace. But as soon as you're always sort of saying, I don't want that, I don't want that, you're bringing it to you. You're bringing it to themselves all the while. So I'm going to say you always have to be careful with this uh, desiring to get rid of get rid of things. I mean, ultimately, the idea is to to have some equanimity. I mean, in our practice, our our aim is to have some equanimity, some upekha towards everything that arises, and just remain aware of it. Then we're at that point. Then then real insight, then insight can occur, or, or at that point, when the conditions are right, the mind will suddenly open and it will see beyond its, beyond its, normal, its normal boundaries. That's for a moment, but usually when that type of thing happens, what happens the next moment, the mind that likes sees that kind of freedom or that peace and suddenly goes, I want that, and goes to grip, and then suddenly the door slams in your face because you've created a self which wants that, that you just tasted. But in order to taste that, yourself has to not be there. You know. And they say suffering doesn't end until you do. 
<laughs> Suffering only ends when you do, but it's when it, you do in here, when you've let go in here. So it's this process of always, always letting go. Yeah, I, well, first, I landed up at Nana Chat, and of course I'd meditated a long time. You, oh, it isn't that you're conceited, but you've had children, you're, you know, I'd been a businessman and all this sort of thing. And, and so I got to Nana Chat and I made me an Anagaraka. And then I sat down in the sala of Nana Chat and suddenly a seven-year-old novice, little Thai novice had come along. He'd look at me and he'd go, don't put that there, put it there. There you go. What are you doing there? Yeah, move over there. You know, these Pratfarangs. <laughs> I mean, Pratfarang is quite, in English, it could be quite insulting. It's called someone a Pratfarang. Um, so you'd be going like this, and so one part of me is saying, just accept. You know, and then, then, then the, it's as if, you know, you sort of think, you know, I've been a businessman, I've managed the world quite well, and I've got this seven year old kid. This desire to just punch him in the ear, you know, <laughs> not that bad. But it's kind of funny, but in the end, I just thought, no, just, he said, okay, okay, Anagaraka. <laughs> I do exactly what I'm told. You know, I, take, I get all these, invent these ways of doing it. There's a German monk who's, who disrobed after years. I mean, this, this kind of shows a kind of a wallowing on my side someone's misfortune, but um, there's a very tall, good-looking German, German monk, and uh, we were, he was a salmon heir, and we were making our robes together. He was going to make the best, and he was another one. He'd come along and go, don't put that there, put it there, <laughs> you know. And uh, then we were making, and he made his sangati. He said, my sangati is going to be the best sangati, and all that. He, he's all kind of full of that. And... Uh, he made this sangati and then he had it stored in his kuti overnight and in the morning a rat had got in and gnawed a hole in his sangati and I remember thinking, hee hee hee. I kind of enjoyed the fact that he had to put a patch in his new sangati. But in actual fact, so I thought, I used to think, oh, I'm going to have trouble with this guy. You know? But in actual fact, I mean, this, is, this shows what it takes for me to open to somebody is that we went to, a, it was interesting, we went to a monastery, we were in a remote monastery, that was a new monastery, and then he caught malaria, and, and, and that area is one of the worst places in the world for cerebral malaria, brain malaria, which is a killer. I've nursed someone, I've nursed two people with cerebral malaria, and it, it's not funny when people have got it, it's horrible. And there was only, at that time, there was only one drug for it, and people in the village would die of it, so... And uh, this monk was totally pa panicked by this. You know, the thought that he might have this and wanted checkups. And it's quite funny, is that I always saw him as, up to that point, I'd seen him as really this tough, ordering me around, you know. And but in actual fact, once I saw his vulnerability, I suddenly saw this other side of him which was completely vulnerable, you know. And it was, <laughs> I get a bit touched now, but. Um, it just, my heart burst, you know, towards him. And we became the closest and dearest friends. And after that, whenever we were going to go to, whenever we were going to go to another monastery for the vas or some period, we'd always meet and we'd have a cup of coffee 
on his cootie, you know, to say goodbye. And then ye years after, he did, he did uh, disrobe. And he came back here, and I felt so sorry for him because he'd become a, you know, he was smoking and he'd become a taxi driver. And, you know, I thought, why didn't he stay as a monk, you know? But gradually, I suddenly put myself in that position, you know, from, from the life that I had. Well, you do retreats, and I used to have a lovely time on retreats. You sit there all day, and my legs at that time, my knees were really good. So I could sit full lotus, two hours, no pain, and just sit enjoying the day, basically. But in actual fact, really, where I really learned was when I was put in positions where, where, you know, I really had to face some stuff. It doesn't mean to say you've got to go looking for trouble. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise people to go off to Kiev in, you know, somewhere where there's a war going on just to test yourself. It's not like that. Life brings us enough in our daily life without uh, having to look for problems. But yeah, so it was in, it was in through that, you know, I really learned over time, took a long time in my case, and I'm not finished. <laughs> you know, it took, took a long time to, to, to gradually learn. And suddenly, you suddenly, years after, you suddenly look back and you reflect, sit and reflect, and you realize, you know, you've, you've changed, you've let go of, you've let go of so much, you know, inhibition and fear and, 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 and you know, and try to improve the, you know, the sides of you which need improving, not particularly for yourself to show off, but for, as a consideration for other people because they have to put up with you <laughs> most of the time. We live in a time, I don't like, I sometimes get into this area, but I, I don't like to get into this area. We're now living in a time in the world where it's becoming so confused. I think it's becoming, there's so much confusion. I mean, we now we have this, like I always say, we, this, we, have, we have these these things. We can do it with all the lists. You can do the uh, body, feeling, perception, conception, consciousness with your fists, or earth, air, fire. You know, you can, you can actually do lists with parts of your body. Body, the same kind of thing. I sort of think, well, it's funny, these times, this, we get this and there's a clinging of self, you know. And now, say, with identity crisis, I don't care what identity somebody is, I'll always treat them with respect and love, as long as they don't expect me to buy into their delusion. I'm deluded enough, you know, without taking on somebody else's and fitting into their one, reinforcing everybody's view on it. But now this, now the... The, the identity politics has become such a thing that people have dismantled reality, what they call postmodernism or deconstructionism. The, right, so they, the person say it's all conceptual and all this sort of thing. But instead of saying it's all conceptual and seeing anatta and seeing this behind it, and then being able to skillfully use convention, the conventions we use, there's then gripping more, gripping more to I am this, I am that, and then the grip becomes tighter and it becomes like it can, can become like a fist, you know. We all have conceptions that, you know, if in, in the realm of quantum mechanics, we are all one. You know, there's nothing for me, you know, looking at it more scientific way, all there is here is quantum mechanics work in a way, atoms and all this sort of thing, 
on the conventional level, we're who we are, nuns, monks, me, you. you know. It's another thing I use for illustration for our practice, which I think is lovely, and it was something I read, I, I heard years ago, and I just thought, that's just, to me, might not be for somebody else, but I thought, that's just what practice is to me, just sitting, to sit, to be aware. They had this thing, they have this illustration of a, 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 a tray, a chemistry tray. Then they put a water gobble. You most probably heard this, some of you. They put, but it's an interesting one. They put a water double, uh, bubble in it, you know, water, so it mounds up. And then they put an electrode into the water and then they play. And then what happens is the water, on the top of the water, you get a form like a tetrahedron and, you know, some complex form. And then they, they, do that higher, so they do it higher. They make the impulse higher, and then what the what the water does, it becomes unstable, and it starts shaking. And this is they do this to illustrate, I think, chaos theory, parts of chaos theory, one of these highfalutin theories that becomes unstable, and then at a certain point it goes, and it becomes stable again. But the complex onto it, the design on the top of it has evolved so as it can take the higher bright vibration. And then when they talk about things like um, bivocation in nature, you know, they plant a bulb and all the goodness and everything goes into the bulb. See, and the bulb can't contain all that that comes in, so the bulb goes and it involves a stalk <laughs> and, you know, and it evolves into a flower. Or something like that. But it's absorbing and it's, it's the bivocation, it's the dividing of cells. When we're conceived, we're the division of cells and we evolve. So for me, when we sit meditation and we sit quietly, or try to, <laughs> you know, or observe, keep coming back to awareness, then what we're doing is we're gradually, we're going through this similar process. That's why sometimes when you, you sit and Suddenly, the whole the whole body can, the whole body. You know, they say in Zen, stop talking and thinking. There's nothing you will not be able to know. And and like in 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 Rinzai Zen, you know, you have a koan which you can't answer intellectually. So as it keeps you right here, it keeps you right there. And you can feel you can feel the body goes through tensions and different things, aches and pains and tensions. The whole thing is purifying. Then at a certain point. There's a release. That release can either act slowly over a period, or it can do in one, in one big like a cathartic. What you'd say is a cathartic type of experience. And then the mind, and the same with the mind, the pressure in the mind, the clinging in the mind can release. And then so, you, most people, elderly, you're sitting there, and suddenly, and then suddenly, oh, oh, it's peaceful. <laughs> You know, and that can happen. In, it can be happening in a way where you impressed yourself. You think, oh, that was nice. <laughs> you know, then it could be peaceful. And then next time you sit, you have the same problem again. You think, oh, that's funny. I thought I'd evolved. And I hadn't. No, you've just, just evolved a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> if you did it all complete, you just go, Pwah! 
<laughs> so that to me, this is what the Buddha did to me. He had his life of indulgence and then he went to the other end and tried every austerities and then in the end he just decided to carry on walking, doing his arms round in mindfulness. And then he had tremendous paramis. So when he's walking down in the middle, discerning mind and being with mind, then he had the parami that he had jhanas and these others. So he whipped all through them. <laughs> you know, but in the end he then became reflective on the nature of the nature of things. That's to encourage us monastics. I'm sure I'll run away next week, but <laughs> you'll say last week you gave that talk about us. <laughs> but we're all different. It's quite, quite amazing, really, that we as 50 people, we're all different ages and different types. We've got people who can memorize Patimoka chanting 45 minutes. I remember when I first became a monk, I thought well, I got five years to learn that. And I've suddenly realized, no, I need about 50 years to learn it, not five. We, have, we, we did a little Purana chant this morning, and I have to have my book. You know, just for that, five lines. But I can draw pictures and make Buddhas, so... We've all got our hot spots, <laughs> all got our weaknesses and our strengths, and each one of us has all got our weaknesses and our strengths. The monk said to me a while ago, he's not in this monastery, but he's really quiet and all that. He's very quiet, and he's not very practical. And he said to me, he said, "Oh, you do art." He said, "All that." He said, "I haven't got anything." He said, "I'm useless at everything." And I said, "You're very quiet." <laughs> You know, I said, you're very quiet. It's a quality. You're just not spotting it, you know. And I think when, when people come into monasteries and they're having a difficult time or their personality is a bit cranky, doesn't fit with anybody else, they think, well, we're all a bit cranky. <laughs> I'm, re I'm retreating. And then he was like, I feel like the odd one out. I always feel a bit odd. I say, yeah, you're completely unique, just like everybody else. All of this, these things. So I offer you this little reflection. <laughs>